Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Today we have our Editor's Roundtable, where I'm joined by Shika Dalmia and Akiva Malamut to discuss the Supreme Court's recent Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard decision, which invalidated university affirmative action programs. Shika, do you want to start us off by maybe talking a little about the legal history that got us to this point? Uh, sure, Erin. Um, and uh, as usual, thanks for doing this. This is a hot subject right now, so I'm glad uh, we are weighing in. Um, so yeah, so just to, you know, just put my cards on the table. I mean, I have exceedingly mixed feelings about this ruling. On one hand, I think uh, the outcome over here, which is essentially outlawing affirmative action, some kind of racial preferences for you know minorities is going to make the system more unfair than it's currently been, not, uh, not more fair, as a lot of the boosters of this case uh, uh, or this ruling are suggesting. On the other hand, uh, you know, the whole admissions process is a complete mess. I mean, and it's a complete racket, in fact. And the reason are the admission standards, the way they have, or uh, admissions practices, the way they have developed is all in response to kind of like the legal uh, jurisprudence that has evolved on the subject since like 19... Uh, 78, I think, when the Supreme Court issued its Baki ruling. And in the in the Baki case, which is a famous, famous case, uh, Justice Powell at that time said that, you know, universities can use race as one factor, as a, as a plus factor, but not as a decisive consideration um, in order to, you know, admit a minority student. So in other words, uh, you know, there was a widespread understanding then that, you know, a purely, a, you know, like a totally a merit-based standard with no accommodation for anything else uh, would lead to fair results. On the other hand, the Constitution bans outright, you know, racial preferences uh, on the basis of your skin color. I mean, that is a constitutional no-no. The 14th Amendment backs, uh, bans it. The Civil Rights Act bans, um, you know, preferences due to race. Uh, and that was, and those, you know, obviously the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act was to prevent uh, privileged white students from uh, from profiting from preferences. Uh, but the standard was that no skin color uh, ought to be used. And so, but this little accommodation was allowed uh, by uh, by the Baki standard. But fast forward 20, about 20 years, and then you get uh, to, uh, University of Michigan, Erin, where that you attended, and I was in Michigan when the University of Michigan's famous cases, uh, Gratz versus uh, University of uh, Michigan, and then Kruder, uh, two female white students challenged the university because they felt that the points the um, the race-based standard that the university was using uh, was discriminating against them. And these two were really famous cases. And at that point, the university developed a pretty interesting rationale for defending race-based preferences. It 
it, it developed what was called the diversity defense, which meant that racial preferences at that point became no longer about actually just remedying pa- past racial discrimination. They became about uh, uh, improving the educational experience of all students, including white students. So the idea was that if you have more minority students and, you know, blacks and Hispanics with diverse backgrounds of disadvantage, it actually opens up richer kind of conversations and makes white students aware of certain things that, you know, they may, may not be aware of and vice versa. Uh, And the reason this standard was developed was because this is the only one that could overcome sort of the constitutional barriers to using race-based preferences. There is a separate standard which says that uh, governments and, and, you know, I should remind listeners that uh, University of Michigan was a public university and um, and that government entities can use racial considerations when they have a compelling state interest and they made strict scrutiny. That means that the racial considerations are central to the mission of what the entity is trying to accomplish, and there is no other way to accomplish that mission. And so the University of Michigan developed this diversity standard, which turned out to be like a really bad standard. You know, now, I mean, I'm not saying there's nothing to it. I think there's actually benefit in in having diverse students in a, you know, in a student body. I don't disagree with that. But as a way to get around the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, it just led the university to develop entirely arbitrary admission standards where racial preferences were still being used and uh, I think the record shows uh, shows that, you know, if you were black or Hispanic, the university was giving you uh, a boosting your GPA from three points to four points. Uh, whereas, you know, if you were an Asian student because they were overrepresented, it would there was a penalty to, you know, um, you know, to your uh, application. Uh, this has led to the diversity standard has led to such confusion and so much arbitrariness that it led to the Harvard case and the University of uh, North Carolina case, the two universities that were challenged in the current ruling. And basically, the argument over here was not so much that these standards discriminate against whites, although they do, but that they discriminate against Asians. So they were pitting one racial group against the other. And there is no doubt about it that you know, Asian students were really, really losing out in all of this. Um, but, you know, like the big thing uh, that this ruling, uh, the, uh, the reason I said this ruling is going to make matters worse rather than better from the standpoint of fairness and equity is that there are so many other kinds of preferences that the universities use, private and public universities, But because they are not constitutionally offensive, the universities can continue to use them. And these, you know, and they are famously, you know, this is the the university, uh, these preferences apply to athletes, they apply to legacies, they apply to uh, children of, uh, uh, you know, children of faculty, and they apply to athletes. 
And these, you know, these preferences take so many seats out of a purely, you know, meritocratic pool that it it increases the unfairness for everybody else. But now keeping these preferences, but removing racial preferences essentially means that minority seats are available for competition by, you know, majority uh, communities, whites, but majority seats, uh, you know, which went to these various racial preferences uh, uh, are not, are no longer available to minorities. So, in as in essence, it's going to make it harder. The so you know the the racial preferences um, for whites are going to effectively increase, and minorities are going to be left out even more from some of our elite institutions. Yeah, I think that does a good job of summarizing some of my complicated thoughts about this as well, because I. I guess I want to set aside the the rightness or wrongness of the court's particular legal reasoning because I think that, as is the case with most constitutional law, smart people can very much disagree. And um, and I have over years in law school and then years of being involved in the public policy space have increasingly come to view essentially most constitutional law arguments as cover for underlying ideological and policy preferences that you can kind of reason your way to whatever position you want and make it plausible on on the constitutional and legal grounds. That said, yes, what's been fascinating to me to watch and often troubling is how much the focus is on getting rid of racial discrimination. I think that that claim that Roberts had made in prior decision, a prior affirmative action decision that if you want to stop discriminating on the basis, if you want to stop discrimination on the basis of race, you need to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And affirmative action was simply that, is a really common view that has like a surface level plausibility to it. We we don't want the government to treat people differently because of the color of their skin. And we don't want we don't like it when private actors treat people differently because of immutable characteristics. I mean, the uproar about the the other big decision on um, on the the wedding site for a gay couple speaks to that. Like, we don't want, in this case, a web designer to be you know able to turn away a gay couple for something for their their identity. And you know, there's a there's a a real case for being upset about that kind of discrimination. And so on that side, that makes a lot of sense. But it also seems to tie into this real desire to basically say the only kind of racial discrimination that still exists is government-based racial discrimination. And so if we can just get the state to stop discriminating against people, racial discrimination goes away. It's a denial of how continually – like racially segregated our society remains, how much discrimination actually exists, yeah, even at the state level. I always go back to say this, Radley Belko had this exhaustive list that he published on the Washington Post years and years ago of all of the data that the criminal justice system simply ha- suffers from systemic anti-black bias. Like it's the, the evidence is overwhelming that there are racial differences in policing, prosecution, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the 
affirmative action conversation seems to be just kind of a wanting to deny that, that if we just get the government's thumb off of the scale, things will play out the way that they ought to. And and so the ignoring of everything that you just brought up, Shika, of legacy admissions, athlete admissions, all of these things that, particularly legacy admissions, which at the elite universities count for an extraordinary portion of incoming students, really does serve to give white students an advantage because they, white families, are more likely to be legacy families than minority families. And the the kind of ignoring of that says, I don't really care about this particular kind of discrimination. I only really care about this other kind of discrimination. And and it just seems to be emblematic of particularly conservative and the right's view that America has, has moved on from racism. It's not something that we need to worry about. It's moved on from racial discrimination. It's moved on from racial inequality. And we can all that's left to fix the remaining problems of of race and mistreatment is to get is to get rid of affirmative action. Um, that that's that's what matters. Um, and and that seems to be again the legal reasoning might be correct, but but the laser focus on this particular kind of discrimination, inequality, unequal treatment at the expense of all the others, I think speaks to more of just like an attitude about the place of race in America and one that seems to be detached from like the actual reality on the ground of of America's ongoing racial problems. Right. If I can just add to that, Erin, I mean, you brought up, um, you know, how much uh, legacies tend to be predominantly white uh, profit from this. There is this one argument out there that, uh, you know, there isn't much difference between the uh, sort of the SAT scores and other admission standards uh, that are applied to legacies versus, uh, you know, other candidates admitted. That turns out actually not to be true. And I had done this piece in Reason magazine, you know, long time ago, um, I what was it? I think 2008 it was. It, called, it was called Legacies of Injustice, where I was looking precisely at how much admission standards were being corrupted by, uh, you know, legacies. And yet we were mainly focused on, focused on uh, you know, the racial preferences. And I have some numbers over here um, uh, somewhere uh, where they, they, uh, one of the perverse things is that private universities and even public ones do not release their admission data. And so uh, you have to, so the, the researchers studying admissions practices and how much of, you know, a factor legacy preferences, racial preferences are, have to deduce them from, you know, uh, you know, various kind of like techniques that they have developed. And one researcher, Tom uh, Espenshade from Princeton, what he found was that if being black and Hispanic adds up to an advantage of 230 um, or 185 extra SAT points, legacies actually also get like about 160 points. And there was a, a amicus brief that was submitted at... Um, in this current case, in the um, uh, uh, by opponents of uh, um, you know this lawsuit, and they were claiming that at Harvard, almost seventy percent of legacies 
who are admitted would not be admitted on a pure on on the you know on a purely meritocratic standard so this does in fact add up to a whole lot of advantage for white students uh and uh, uh what also adds up to a whole lot of advantages like you know uh sports on one hand you will also hear this argument from those who think racial preferences are particularly you know terrible but all these other preferences are not is that well that's you know athletic standards at least measure some kind of merit but what are the sports that are being used in some of these uh colleges uh, elite colleges it's sailing it's lacrosse it's all the sort of like the white sports that are being privileged so there is a systematic bias for white students built into the admissions process that racial preferences were offsetting only slightly and yet it is as to your point it's racial preferences that have become turned into a huge political movement whereas all these other factors are only now beginning to get some attention because everybody realizes uh, at some intuitive level that this is going to make matters worse from a social justice standpoint so i just want to step in here a little bit i agree with what we've been saying so far uh with the general idea that this is a complicated problem um and that there is simultaneously a, a a tension between the worry that there's too much focus on race and that we are discriminating on the basis of race, but at the same time recognizing that color blindness or the supposed color blindness actually involves ignoring racial injustice rather than dealing with it. And so I'm very sensitive to that kind of tension. I think one of the challenges in talking about this as well, though, is that there are different rationales given for affirmative action in the first place, but that those rationales are often intention themselves. And so when people talk about why is affirmative action important, um, the justification that gets given can be widely diverging, and only some of those rationales, I think, actually serve as legitimate justification. If the argument for affirmative action is on the basis of social mobility, of some kind of reparative justice, which is somewhat in the line of of uh, what Aaron was talking about before, in the sense that there's a legacy of racism and so on, I think the that the affirmative action as reparative justice has done a terrible job, because there's incredible data amount of data that shows that minorities who get, um, particularly blacks who get uh, put into colleges on the basis of their minority status tend not to finish the college. They tend not to be able to succeed in college. They end up getting put there without having the tools to succeed. And a lot of this has to do with the also an undue focus on college and university as the means of success in the United States. Whereas what we often see is that the reason that people can't succeed is because they haven't had certain basic skills in reading and writing and math that they didn't receive when they were uh, toddlers when they were ch- when they were young children, then this has much more to do with the way that they're raised in their way their families raise them and the schools that they attend than it does to do with college. And I think there's this kind of mythology of college as a stepping stone to better things um, that ignores the importance of early childhood education. Um, and there's been some lots of important good research, particularly by James Heckman at Chicago, on the importance of early childhood education. And so there's a contradiction between that, between the social mobility claim, which I think is generally not supported, and the claim that, well, if it's not for social mobility, it's for some sort of notion of diversity. 
um, some notion that what we want is multiple perspectives. But then, of course, you have diversity of different kinds that conflict with each other. Is the diversity that we're going to favor that from the Black community? Is it going to be from the Asian community? Is it from the Pacific Islander community? How do we sort what sufficient diversity is? Um, and so you end up getting into um, ultimately what is no longer a reparations-based argument, because I think the reparations kind of argument just isn't supported empirically, into ultimately re-racifying the campus and talking about what counts as through the lens of what counts as diversity. And of course, this is a fairly tropey point for conservatives that um, racial diversity belies the lack of ideological diversity. And it's one that they like to make a lot, but I think is fundamentally true. There is a problem of ideological diversity on campus. And sometimes the focus on cultural differences doesn't get enough at ideological or intellectual differences that actually enlivens the academic environment. And so I think there is something valid in that concern. Um, and so the question is, I think, is not just one about whether affirmative action um, has a racial tint to it and that the um, the people who are the most critical of affirmative action are the kind of people for whom racial justice is a low priority, but it's also worth genuinely asking whether affirmative action is the kind of avenue that we should use to deal with racial justice and with social mobility. Personally, I think that an income-based system affirmative action is a much better system than a race-based system because it captures the kinds of people, particularly in minority communities, who are left behind. And it doesn't privilege, for example, middle-class people from minority communities who probably need less of a leg up. Quick uh, follow-up over here, Akiva. Uh, agree with a whole lot of what you say, but let me push back on a couple of points. Uh, one point is, you know, you stated the mismatch hypothesis that um, in a regime of affirmative action and racial preferences, uh, uh, unprepared minority students are put into environments where they can't compete, so their graduation rates, uh, you know, drop, and they, you know, and they don't profit from you know, the elite university education, whereas if you put them in universities where they are matched better, uh, you know, they graduate and they, you know, do better. And there is clear evidence for that uh, in uh, the California uh, system where um, racial preferences were done away with. And so, you know, black or Hispanic kids, instead of going to UCLA, went to some other school, which was two notches lower, but ended up the graduation rates were higher. But there is also a great deal of research on the other side on the role modeling effect of uh, some of this, of affirmative action, which is that it really does make a difference, even if it is, as you pointed out, the somewhat, you know, the better of minority kids that are profiting from the, this regime of preferences. But the role modeling effect for downstream is actually quite real too. So the social science on this is, uh, you know, somewhat competing. And as for, you know, the diversity rationale, I mean, like I pointed out, it was entirely developed to deal with the prescription against racial preferences, you know, that the 14th Amendment and, you know, the Civil Rights Act uh, had uh, written into law. However, you know, look at the debate about legacy preferences, right? At least in my among my conservative friends, the 
my white conservative friends are kind of split on legacies. You know, half of them think it's a bad idea and half of them think it's a good idea. But if you look at black conservatives, they are all united on legacies being a terrible idea. I mean, Justice Thomas in, you know, the University of Michigan case pointed out that legacies are poisonous to the admission system. Tim Scott, the black senator, right now, has made a very vocal statement against uh, legacies. Ward Connerly, um, you know, who was the, you know, the black businessman who spearheaded the ballot initiative in California then in, and then in Michigan to ban legacies, I, in my, you know, in the piece that I mentioned, Legacies of Injustice, was vehemently against, against legacies and was counseling, you know, his... Uh, uh, you know, white comrades uh, in the anti-affirmative action crusade to also uh, ban legacy preferences, but he couldn't get them on board. There is no division among blacks on the perversity of legacy preferences. And if you have a critical mass of black students represented on college campuses, I think that view would become very important. So I, you know, I take your point that ideological diversity is in some ways, you know, just as important as sort of like racial diversity, which to me is a proxy for, uh, you know, disadvantages that uh, people might have faced. But there is really ideological diversity and IQ points really cannot replace this perspective that minorities bring to the table, even when they are ideologically div divided. And apologies for rattling on like this, but go ahead. Erin, I'm sure you've got a lot to say. I will try not to turn it into a lot, a lot, but I think both of you bring up really critical points for, for framing the conversation about this, because one of the things that gets lost not just here, but in a lot of political discussions, is the efficacy of the thing that we are arguing about. Like whether this this particular policy, this particular program, this particular set of laws, whether it works, often gets lost in conversations that have more to do with this policy or program is a is a symbol of a set of values, right? And so if you oppose racial discrimination, if you think systemic racism is real, if you are the kind of person who sees yourself as an ally, then you are in favor of affirmative action programs, whether they work or not, right? Like, and not, not in the sense that, like, you don't care, but in the sense that you don't bother to look into their effectiveness and whether other things would work or not. Um, and and then if you are the kind of person who tends to be more on the right, tends to see, I think one of the primary characteristics of the right is a belief in natural hierarchies, that certain groups, certain people naturally will belong, will end up on the top if we have freedom. And so getting the government messing with that, doing anything that would break down natural hierarchies is, is like an imposition on nature itself and the way that things ought to be. And I'm I'm reminded of the the famous line about the colorblind constitution comes from Justice Harlan's dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. But lost is the the parts that come before the colorblind constitution line, 
where he says, I'm going to quote this because I think this this speaks to what I'm getting at. He says, the white race deems itself to be the dominant race in this country, and so it is in prestige and achievements and education and wealth and power. So I doubt not it will continue to be for all time if it remains true to its great heritage and holds fast to the principles of constitutional liberty. But in the view of the Constitution, there can't be – and then he goes on to say there can't be a superior. The Constitution doesn't allow us to discriminate. So his whole thing is in in a regime of freedom and where the law treats everyone equally, the right, white race will naturally be on top because they are the superior race in terms of their culture and abilities and achievements and so on. Like I think that attitude is motivating a lot of this too. And so those are the people who are like, it doesn't really matter whether affirmative action works or not. What matters is that it's sim- it's it's symbolic of the government interfering in what they take to be either consciously or unconsciously a natural hierarchy of the races or cultures, ethnicities, and so on. Um, and and that what that means is that people people in the middle get kind of trapped or people who are subject to these policies can get trapped, right? So there may be better ways to help people who have been the victims of past discrimination, historical discrimination, are not as well off as they might be right now. Because of that, there might be better ways to help them than these affirmative action programs at elite colleges, um, or it might turn out that these affirmative action programs at elite colleges don't have the discrimination against white people affect to the extent that conservatives say, but like that conversation just gets lost in terms of big policies become symbolic of cultural, social values. And then the arguments about whether we should have them or not, whether they're legal or not, whether they're constitutional or not, aren't really about those issues, but are instead about which set of cultural values or perspectives ought to win out or which set of cultural values or perspectives are the ones that you want to signal your alliance with. Um, I largely agree with that, Erin. Couple of points of pushback though, right? Um, I think, you know, your you know, basic distinction about if you like affirmative action, you don't care about its practical effect. And if you don't like uh, affirmative action, you care a great deal about its uh, uh, practical effect and whether it's working or not. That's absolutely true. On the other hand, I think uh, Harlan's comment about, uh, you know, in a, a free and equitable society, the, you know, white race will automatically rise to the top. You know, that was a conjecture on his part. But the principle he was affirming was of colorblindness in, in laws. And principles, I do think, have a, limitif- a limiting effect, right? Like, Whatever his heuristic as to what would happen after you have colorblind policies, he was adhering to a moral principle of colorblindness. And in this case, that has actually not worked out badly in the sense that, you know, who is, you know, which race, I mean, I hate these racial categorizations and, you know, all of that. But which race has been hurt and is rising to the and would rise to the top even more within a colorblind, you know, criteria? It would be Asian Americans, right? I mean that, and so the whites who have have actually joined force forces with Asian Americans, not just because you know they are losing out, but because this other race is losing out. So in that sense, um, 
you know, they are trying to uphold the principle. I mean, there are well-meaning people who really do believe in colorblindness, regardless of whether the, you know, hierarchies and the, uh, you know, the schemes of domination that uh, they might have had in mind have materialized or, you know, or not. So I think that's kind of like, you know, an important point. But the other point, I, I mean, you both have hinted on it is, you know, what is fascinating is what in a political conversation, in a, you, you know, what gains traction and what doesn't gain traction. As I think either Akiva or you, Erin, mentioned, Radley Balco had this long list of, uh, you, you know, racially discriminatory policies that were not getting any political traction that were much worse from the standpoint of you know equity and justice but which which one got political traction was you know racial preferences in these few elite universities are terrible and they are you know the moral issue of our day which shows you just how much dominant interests and you know the of the privileged actually shapes our polity and our conversation. And I think that's really an important point to keep in all of this. I very much agree with, with what Shika just said and with what Aaron said. I think to go back to my point about early childhood education, the fact that early childhood education has not become talked about as a major way to solve this problem, the fact that colleges and getting people through colleges um, have become so much of a talking point, I think is emblematic of the fact that the things that bother the elites are what we focus on and not the things that will either, in the case of Radley Balko's you know, long litany of injustices, will get rid of injustices, or in the case of early childhood ed, will diminish and, and a disadvantage. Um, and what really bothers me especially about this is the degree to which what we focus on and to degree to which we think policy, not just the policies that we focus on, but the degree to which we think a policy is good or bad, is contingent on whether we think it has a certain kind of uh, ideological tint, and to, and to what and to to, so, you know, a, a variation on the the affirmative action debate is the um, is is the school choice debate. And I have been very disappointed by the ways in which not only that people, progressives on the left, have described school choice, I think often unfairly, as simply a way for bigots to um, segregate themselves in, in a new way from teaching about LGBT issues or about race issues, but also the way in which conservatives have confirmed their bias by saying, yes, this is about um, LBTT issues or race issues, when in fact I think the heart of school choice, and certainly the way Milton Friedman would talk about school choice, was about alleviating injustices, was about alleviating marginalization, and not about um, reinforcing these sort of culture war um, items. And so, to me, it's the the affirmative action debate is as representative of a very unfortunate. Are you on the side of? Uh, are you either on the side of the natural hierarchy that needs to exist, or are you on the side of the people who think that um, you know injustice is there, and everyone who opposes me is a fan of injustice um, on the more progressive side? Um, 
And tragically, not only have these biases corrupted in terms of how the, each side is characterizing each other, but it is also how they per- self-perceive. And to me, that is extremely troubling and very bad for our discourse in terms of how we proceed, whether we're evaluating affirmative action or school choice, um, or, with, again, the policies that we pay attention to that could make a difference, like early childhood ed. One very, very quick pushback, Akiva, because this is this was a big, big, big issue of mine uh, many lives ago, which is that early childhood education is actually not all that effective. And, you know, universal pre... I wrote so much on universal preschool once upon a time, and if you look at all the gains from uh, Head Start and, you know, and uh, Pre-K and what have you, they are lost pretty quickly. But I think I take your point because I think the real problem is with K-12, right? I mean, a K-12 system is terrible and it's hard to fix that, but it's easy to throw a few preferences at a few minority kids and make yourself feel better. So just a quick response on that. I think the data on early childhood ed is decidedly mixed. Um, And even James Heckman has said that there are limitations to what it can accomplish. Um, But I don't think it's so mixed as to be unhelpful at all. And I think the fact that it's the kind of program that we don't talk about, as opposed to something like college is is sort of the dominant problem, at least discursively, um, in our in, in, in our society. Um, uh, but I will say that I think that there is more value to childhood ed than maybe some people have a representative. I'm a big fan of Jane, of uh, Brink Lindsay's book, Human Capitalism, and where he comes down more in favor of early childhood ed and finds that it has a longer period of um, impact than some of its detractors. But I agree that the data is somewhat complicated. Okay, I don't want to turn this into a back and forth on early education, but very quickly, the programs that have uh, shown effects are ones that are very, very resource intense programs. So, you know, you throw in lots of resources on a few students, you get them the best, best teachers. And yes, they have an effect, but they are extremely hard and expensive to scale up. Very quick story. James, I, Lisa Snell, who was my colleague at Reason at, and an education expert, she and I had co-authored a piece on universal uh, preschool uh, and its lack of efficacy in the Wall Street Journal, where we had actually quoted uh, Heckman on our side. And uh, by the time we quoted him, he'd been captured by the other side. And he wrote a letter to the editor at the time, sort of lambasting our piece. And, uh, you know, and anyways. <laughs> it's very disappointing. Just, anyway, I think Aaron yes. wants to come in. Earlier, you had mentioned the, the role of kind of issues that matter to elites, I think, Akiva. And, and that really is central to a lot of this conversation and the things that we choose. So this affirmative action gets talked about in terms of elite universities, which are things that elites care about because they're the ones going to elite universities. And and as you said, that if we really care about different outcomes in terms of education, our focus should be largely on K through 12, which is where minority kids are falling behind, that the the differences there are quite stark. But even there, it turns into a who you, what you support or don't is kind of a cultural signal, right? So 
the the right often supports school choice because it's the liberals who run the public schools and the right doesn't like their liberal values. The left supports public schools because it's a kind of it's a progressive us getting together program. It's not private, it's not profit driven, it's the community and if you don't support public schools, you're some sort of monster. And this this traps these often minority students in really terrible educations, but the elite don't see that because like I'm the product of the public schools, but I grew up in an upper middle class suburb of Detroit with very good public schools. You know, and so the public schools were great for me. I wasn't the one who was suffering from the low quality of often urban schools. And it it puts me in mind of I remember years ago, like Florida had piloted some school choice programs. And the, the people who were most supportive of them after the fact were black parents who were overwhelmingly supportive of continuing school choice programs because they saw how much it improved the quality of education for their kids. But the elites, again, aren't seeing that because by and large, elites live in wealthy communities that have very good public schools. And, and so again, we're just like, what matters to the elites is not necessarily what matters to other people. Um, and and the elite's conception of where the problems are or what the solutions are are often quite detached from the on-the-ground problems and solutions. And so it feels like the people who are most hurt by these various programs or stand the most to benefit from these various programs are basically lost in the converse in the argument between elites about cultural values. One very, very quick addition to your point, since we, you and I are both from Michigan, Erin. Uh, Michigan was one of the first states to try a ballot initiative in favor of school choice. And it, and it went down in flames, even though uh, folks in Detroit, predominantly black activists, were very much in favor of it because they got so much uh, pushback from you know the suburbs of Detroit, which tend to be much you know more white dominated. So the school choice uh, ballot initiative went down in flames, but proposal A banning racial preferences was hugely popular and passed. So on both sides, you know, uh, uh, you know minority interests were, uh, 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 you know, were undermined. Uh, in the affirmative action case, they had a very good moral argument that we want sort of colorblind, you know, rules for uh, voting against school choice. There was no moral argument whatsoever, right? It was something that black families supported. It was just that, you know, rich whites didn't want their, and not just whites, I mean, other rich people too, minorities too, didn't want their property values and their schools taken over, you know, in any way despoiled. So you get sort of like a double whammy. You, they use moral arguments when it serves their purpose and practical or prudential arguments when it doesn't serve their purpose. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist.